You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the 32nd Psalm, the 32nd Psalm, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are omniscient. You know all things. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Your word pierces and exposes and unveils. You are light and darkness cannot overcome you. We are exposed before you. We are sinners against you, Father. And have mercy on us for all the times we remain silent about our sin, when we try to sweep it under the rug and treat it as a, a trite, a small thing, that which cost your son's blood to redeem us. And so, Father, may your spirit work to convict, may our hearts be tender 
our conscience alert, active, not seared. Bring to our minds sins which we've tried to ignore and act as if they were not so. And grant repentance, Father. Contrition. So that we might know afresh and anew the joy of our salvation. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen. This is the second of what are known as the penitential psalms. There are seven of them that we encounter throughout the Psalter. The others being Psalms 6, 38, 51 the 102nd, 130th, and 143rd Psalms, all being these penitential Psalms. And of these, Psalms 51 and 32 stand out. They're the most well-known. But Psalm 32 stands out almost too much. It barely makes the cut. Because it's not, strictly speaking, a penitential Psalm. It's a psalm of testimony and thanksgiving wherein he reflects back on a moment of penitence and confession. In the other penitential psalms, we find David pleading for forgiveness. And all the psalm might end with David experiencing and reveling in that forgiveness. In the midst of that psalm, he is actually pleading. In this psalm, he's reflecting on his pleas and rejoicing in the forgiveness that followed. We're told that this psalm is a maskil of David, and nothing more than good guesses are made as to what that means. But while we're speaking of people guessing what this psalm means, many have speculated on nothing more than the title telling us that this psalm is of David, and it being a psalm of confession, that this psalm is written in reference to the same specific sin that Psalm 51 was, namely David's adultery with Bathsheba. And while a comparison between Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 I think is especially helpful, I don't think this is because they refer to the same specific event, David's adultery, but because they refer to the same general event, sin, confession of sin. The specific instance of David's sin with Bathsheba does not illuminate any kind of unique features in this psalm. It just serves to illustrate the general truths that we find in this psalm. I think we do a disservice to David if we think that that sin with Bathsheba was the only instance whenever he had in his life to make such kind of confession. In this psalm, David is testifying to the Lord's kindness, goodness, and mercy, and forgiveness. And he's, in doing so, simultaneously instructing us concerning confession and repentance. And the result is that by, by opening and, and putting this, this reflection on confession in this light, he, in instructing us, opens with the carrot rather than the stick. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one 
whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blesses a man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David opens with a benediction. This is the blessed man. And if man's blessedness consists in forgiveness from God, this is a way of proclaiming the goodness and glory of God. Exalting God. Man's blessedness consists in being forgiven by God. David is, I hope you'll see this by the time we get to the end, saying this. Blessedness is God. But for now, I just want you to see that this statement comes to us as a statement of fact. Not an opinion. This is the one who is blessed. David doesn't say blessedness is God in the same way someone might say blessedness is a bowl of ice cream in August. It's not a statement of sheer, mere opinion. It is that, but it's more than that. This isn't just a subjective notion. It is subjective. David has experienced, he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but it is an objective reality. Yahweh is good. It's not just an opinion. David isn't isn't expressing his opinion. He's expressing reality. This is what blessedness is. He says this is blessedness in the same way that one might say the aurora borealis is stunningly beautiful. That is both an expression of objective truth and subjective experience. But it's a subjective experience of that objective truth and reality. Blessed is the man is an expression both of personal delight and transcendent truth. The statement, blessed is this man, this one, helps you to identify a chief character that you encounter again and again and again throughout the Psalms. The righteous man, the upright, the saints, Whenever you come to the end of this psalm, you find this person who's been forgiven is going to be the same one who's spoken of in verse 11 as righteous. Be glad and rejoice, O righteous. And you go to Psalm 1, and it opens by telling us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. And at the end of that psalm, you find that blessed person there also identified as the righteous. As you're reading along in the Psalms and you encounter the righteous, the upright, the saints again and again, if you've got any inkling of the doctrine of the depravity of man, any notion of your sinfulness, you might think, well, that one's not for me. Can't be speaking to me. And you might think whenever the psalmist, who so frequently identifies themselves as the righteous, you might think he's puffed up. Or if you don't want to go there, you're just confused. What does does all this mean? This psalm helps you identify who the righteous one is. He's not one who is self-righteous. 
He's forgiven. His sin covered. His iniquity not counted against Him. Spurgeon links the two Psalms together, Psalm 1 and Psalm 32, saying, This is the second Psalm of benediction. The first Psalm describes the results of holy blessedness. The 32nd details the cause of it. The first pictures the tree in full growth. This depicts it in its first planting and watering. Now, I think Spurgeon is absolutely right as far as the general principles that we find in each psalm. This psalm is true in a broad sense. And and what I mean by that is it's helpful in marking the saints from the sinners, the righteous from the wicked, the sheep and the goats. But its, its aim is more specific. It's true in this specific sense in helping you distinguish between joyful Christians and miserable Christians. David is speaking here. And he's not speaking about his conversion. That's already happened. He is a tree of righteousness. He is a saint. He's one of the righteous. That's established. But then comes this moment of sin and conviction. That's the reflection that we encounter here between the joyful Christian and the miserable Christian. David had something as an oak of righteousness. And he's lost it by his unrepentant unrighteousness. And now we see the way that he comes back to it. Back to the joy of his salvation. And David gives us four parallel descriptions of this blessed man. His transgression is forgiven. The word you have for transgression gives the idea of a crime or or going uh, a departure from where one should go. And the word that you have for forgiveness is very peculiar. It's how how the Hebrew would think of forgiveness in this way. It, It conveys the idea of lifting. It communicates forgiven, but associated with that word is the picture of lifting. And it's argued by some scholars whether or not this speaks to God lifting up the sinner. But I think the better idea is that it's not a lifting up. It's a lifting away of sin. And then we see a sin is covered. Sin is the idea of missing the mark or missing the way. The promise here is that the blessed man has his sin covered. Remember Adam and Eve after their transgression in the garden sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves, to cover their shame. It didn't cover. It didn't work, as we'll see. David also experienced But after God pronounces both curse and blessing because of that sin, blood is shed, skins are made, and He clothes them. He covers them. The blessed man is also one against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity. Iniquity has been, it's there, but it's not counted, it's not reckoned to be so. Upon what basis? It's because righteousness is counted instead. Iniquity isn't counted because righteousness is 
counted. You have the same word that you have as counted here in Genesis 15, 16 concerning Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God doesn't count sin where there is confession because he's counting righteousness where there is belief. David says, Blessed is the one against whom Yahweh does not count his iniquity. And Moses wrote that Abraham was counted righteousness because of his faith. And Paul picks up both of those and says they're speaking to the same truth. In Romans 4. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul tells us that implicitly when David says Yahweh won't count his iniquity against him, he is speaking of this Positive aspect of Yahweh counting righteous the one who trusts in Him. Two sides of the same coin. God justifies, meaning He reckons, counts, or imputes another's righteousness as their own. And Paul makes plain what was veiled to David. And that's that that David's greater son... The Messiah, the Christ, would on behalf of his people as their representative, as their federal head and substitute, achieve all righteousness on their behalf. A righteousness to be counted to those who trust in him. And then finally you're told that this blessed man is is one in whose spirit is no deceit. And with this last description, you see how we made a transition. Before this, we're looking at the righteous man, and now we're looking into the righteous, blessed man. We're looking at him and what his blessedness consists in first. Forgiveness. And now we're looking into him and getting some insight into why his blessedness is confession. There's no deceit. He's honest. What is there no deceit about? Transgression, sin, iniquity. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, John is speaking to fellow saints. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Sinful man seeking to deceive himself is really aiming, trying to delude himself that he's actually deceiving God. 
We make fig leaves. We invent our religion and our rites and our acts. Or we account our good deeds to be as effective at atonement as our Lord's only were. We try to cover things up like David did after his sin with Bathsheba. Now as evidence that this is so, that this is who the blessed man is, as evidence, David presents his own personal testimony. And the bulk of it is negative testimony. Rather than jumping to the joy of forgiveness to establish that this is the blessed man, he speaks of the misery of the one who tries to conceal his own sin. David kept silent about his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Whenever David kept silent about his sin, his sin was loud. Sin has an echo. And it's an echo that reverberates louder and louder the more that you try to stifle and suppress it. You just create the very chamber that causes it to resonate louder and louder by all your attempts to muffle it. David's silence is an attempt at deceit. It's an attempt to do what he stops doing in verse 5. Not covering his sin any further. But with his silencing, anything concerning that sin, he is trying to cover it. When God's children are silent, something is wrong. Silence is an attempt to cover. John Goldengay brilliantly comments, keeping quiet is not a mark of Old Testament piety. Old Testament piety makes noise, either in lament or prayer, or in thanksgiving and praise. There is something suspicious about a person keeping quiet. It gives the impression that something is being concealed. When children are quiet, the parents suspect. When God's children are quiet, God knows. Our silence doesn't speak to any ignorance in God. It testifies to our own knowledge of our shame. Worse yet, our silence is blasphemous. It says we think God a fool. We play as though when we're mute, we somehow make God deaf and blind. We think we are more sly than He is wise. We think we can hide something from His all-seeing eyes. We think we can conceal something from the one who knows everything. We make God a liar, too. First John, again, 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. You see how silence concerning our sin is sin doubled down. Silence on sin 
dishonors God, not only by our rebellion itself, but by our blasphemous, ridiculing silence. Keeping silent attempts to cover our sin, but that's all it does. It's just a futile, pathetic attempt and nothing more. But concealing your sin does do this. Sin is a peculiar plant. It grows in the dark. Keeping your sin concealed just allows it to grow. But the growth is not one of life. It's one of rot and decay. While David tried to keep silent about his adultery, that sin grew into murder. Sin grows in the dark. It's a fast-spreading mold that must be treated immediately. And the way you treat it is to expose it to the light. To confess it. While David kept silent, his bones wasted away through groaning. Verse 3. The reason why sin affects us so is because sin is opposed to God, and thus God is opposed to sin. And so while David remained silent, Yahweh's heavy hand was upon David. While David was silent, God was not. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Our silence is an attempt to make God silent. It attempts to suppress the truth, to sear the conscience, to drown out the conviction of the Spirit. But the hand of God presses on day and night. There's no life to be found in our sin, only death, so that He dries up as in the heat of summer. In Psalm 1, we learn that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in their season, its leaf does not wither. But here that stream is cut off. Or rather we should say, David is still an oak. And there's still evidence that the stream is flowing into him in this way. The conviction that he's experiencing. But there's no enjoyment There's no life being drawn from that stream other than that singular experience of conviction. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no rest. When David cuts off confession, God cuts off comfort and communion and gives only the grace of conviction. The one way that David still has communion with God. Saint, recognize this. If you've got unconfessed sin in your heart right now, realize the grace and goodness of God if the hand of God is heavy upon you. That there's still this trickle of life, the stream of God's grace coming into you of conviction. And act on it today. Why is the forgiven man blessed? David first answers by presenting his testimony that the man 
who tries to conceal his own sin is miserable. And then we come to the turn in verse 5. How is it that David found forgiveness? Not only for his sin, but for his sin compounded by silence. He acknowledged his sin to God. He didn't try to cover his iniquity. He confessed his transgressions to Yahweh. We already saw that it, it means that there's no deceit in David. There's honesty. And this, it's clear now, this doesn't mean that David was always honest about his sin. But it means he was habitually honest about his sin. He came to this place again and again and again. The Puritan author Thomas Brooks enumerates eight properties of true penitential confession of sin. I just want to give you a handful of those. One, he says, it's free. It is voluntary, not forced or extorted. He writes that the truly penitent man is as free in his confession of sin as he has been free in the commission of sin. He's not confessing just because now, now he's caught and what other option does he? It, it's something that comes freely from the soul. The same I who sinned now says, I acknowledge my sins to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I confess my transgression to the Lord. A second, he says, con true penitential confession is full as well as free. You cannot deal with full sins by half confessions. You cannot say, forgive me, and then offer up an excuse for the sin that you've committed. We must acknowledge our sin. We must say of our sin what God says of our sin. We must say that what I've done is so vile, Father, it deserves nothing but an eternal hell. What I've done is so vile, so putrid, so wretched, that the only thing that could wash this stain from me is the blood of your perfect and precious Lamb. Third, he says it's sincere, it's cordial. It's not feigned, not formal, not a mere verbal confession, but an, affection, uh, an affectionate confession. He's saying it, it comes from the heart. Brooks comments, confessions will never affect the heart of God that do, not first, that do not first affect our own hearts. And though you see a strict and rigid form with David's speaking of his confession here, with the penitential Psalms, the form is not just formal. It's not a mere formality. Rather, the form is for David to give full vent to his heart, not conceal his heart. Fourth, he says, true confession is distinct and not confused. He goes on to say, an implicit confession is almost as bad as, as an implicit faith. What, what's he getting at here? Wicked men, he says, commonly confess their sins by wholesale. We are all sinners. The true penitent confesses his sins 
by retail. This is my sin. It's, again, distinct, not confused, not muddled. We can pray general prayers of confession that are true and right. As we see the publican. God be merciful to me, a sinner. But even there, there's a specificity. It wasn't be merciful to us sinners. No, be merciful to me, a sinner. There was a sense that he had of a sinfulness is what he's confessing in that moment. But too often, whenever we just make these general confessions, what we're wanting to avoid is getting specific about a sin and bringing it into the light. God, forgive me of my sins, we say. Because we don't want to really reflect and dwell on and think on and bring a specific sin into the light in confession to our God. Because then, then we'd have to really act on it for that confession to be true. We know there would have to be repentance. There might have to be further confession. There might have to be action concerning that sin. So we just say a general confession because we want to feel better and silence the conviction that's there without really speaking on it. Fifth, the true penitent confesses his sins humbly, sorrowfully. He goes on, Confession without contrition neither pleaseth God nor profiteth man. Confession is the language of the tongue. Contrition is the language of the heart. And God looks for both. David's current state as he writes this psalm is clearly one of joy, but it is a joy that was born out of conviction and then contrition and then confession concerning sin. And on the other side of this confession, this is what David found. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he entered into the blessedness then that he speaks of in verses 1 and 2. After David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Nathan says to David, Yahweh has also put away your sin. You will not die. What David could not Put away. You see him striving in futility, sweating, working, conspiring to put away his sin. And what he could not do, God does when he brings it to him. Sinner, if it is for fear of God, that you're trying to put away your sin. Know that by those acts, you do not put away anything. You only heap more on. But if you will bring your vile, soul-damning sin before the holy God of heaven, if you will bring it before the very one whom you fear because of that sin, the astounding promise of God is that what you cannot put away, He will put away. Saints, confession is not only the gate into salvation. It is the path of salvation we trod all of our days 
on this earth. It's the path of sanctification. John was writing to believers when he said, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He tells us God is not only faithful to do that. If you'll do it, He'll do it. But He's just to do so. How is it just to declare just those who've committed injustice? Because one bore justice for our sins on our behalf. Our representative has a righteousness. He's eternally righteous. He didn't need to achieve righteousness for himself. He came to achieve it in our place. And he declares us just not because we are, but because he is. The image that you have in 1 John there, again, it's concerning the saints. It doesn't concern. It's true concerning, but it's not written concerning sinners confessing their sins before a judge to escape condemnation. The context of 1 John, the context of Psalm 32 is speaking to a child of God no longer enjoying communion with God and comfort from God but coming to enjoy it anew and afresh by confession. If you have lost the joy of your salvation, if you feel like a a tree with no river feeding it any longer, as though your bones are wasting away, if you feel as though something even you've tried to suppress from your own knowledge and mind is coming to the surface by God's piercing and exposing word this morning, hear this. If you will confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and you enter into communion and fellowship and know His comfort and His love once more. While David hid his sin, the hand of God was heavy upon him. When he finally confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he did so saying, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit From me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Are you beginning to see that David is not confessing his sin because now he wants to enjoy simply benefits from God anymore? He wants God because God himself is blessedness. God himself is his joy. The reason why forgiveness, the reason why the covering of sin, the reason why they're so blessed is because they give us God. Try to cover your sin, and it will be exposed either in condemnation of sinners or chastisement 
of children. But it will be exposed. But if you will expose it, it will be covered with mercy and grace. When you stop trying to cover your sin, God will. Douglas Wilson writes, It's not a bad impulse to want to cover sins. They are genuinely shameful. And they cry out for a covering. Our own lame efforts to cover them with lies, bluster, and moralistic furniture polish are not wrong because they cover, but rather because they do not cover. Every sinner should want his sins to be covered. But the only thing that really covers sin is not shifts and evasions, but the blood of our great high priest Jesus Christ. Every other way of dealing with sin has to be done over and over again. And the fact that you have to keep doing it shows that it does not work. If you confess your sin and receive forgiveness from God for that sin, you are cleansed. It is done. In light of this personal testimony, David brings this confession to, this conclusion to bear down upon the listener. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The prayer that David is speaking of there, offer prayer may be found, while he may be found, is the prayer of confession. And the implication is there will come a time when it's too late. And the meaning of that makes it clear the, the newer translation that the ESV offers, which is the correct one. You may have an older version, but the, the updated is, I believe, the more faithful. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach Him. Within the flood that comes up on them, they will not reach God. There will come a time whenever those pleas will fall on deaf ears. There are two possibilities here. He could be saying, there's a time, children. Whenever the time to confess is over, and chastisement is going to be dealt out. If there was confession quickly on that sin, you would know grace and mercy. But now there, there, there comes a point where correction is necessary. So he may be saying, confess before, before correction is, is coming and unavoidable. That's what David experienced here, I believe. He hid it so long. You see it with Bathsheba, do you not? He, he hid and let that sin grow to such an extent. Correction, chastisement came. But he could be saying, all you godly in the sense of those of you who are part of the assembly of God's people. You have the appearance and the profession of one who is of the righteous. Of God. He could be saying, cry out before you prove that you're not. Psalm 95 implores, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of, at Massa. In the wilderness, don't harden your hearts. This is in reference to those Israelites in the wilderness 
who didn't enter God's rest, Hebrews 3 and 4, comment at length on that singular passage from Psalm 95. Hebrews 3.12 gets to the heart of the issue. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Keeping silent about your sins means silencing your conscience. It means ignoring the Spirit so that your heart grows harder and harder. The saints will foster the habit of confession throughout their days. And God will correct and chastise them to bring that habit into effect if need be. And the warning is that if you're fostering the habit of silence, instead of a saint, very likely you're an ain't. You're not God's. You're not his child. Call upon him before you've so hardened your heart, seared your conscience, quenched the spirit, that there's no conviction felt at all. Following the conclusion, this conclusion, David turns again to testify, verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The one David was hiding from, he now hides in. You cannot hide from God, but you may hide in Him. You cannot find refuge with your sins. Save if you bring them to the one from whom you are hiding. You cannot find refuge from God except in God. You cannot find refuge for your sins, but you can find refuge from your sins fleeing to the one. You you cannot escape judgment for your sins. You can only flee to the place where it's already been born. In verses 8 and 9, we have some words of instruction. It's argued as to who's doing the instructing, though. Some will say that it's God. They lean heavy on the second part of verse 8. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And they, they just, they have nothing more than to say that gives them the feeling of that's being God. But David could be saying, I'll counsel you, watching you as well. And because of the lack of any transition, because of the flow of the psalm, because David's voice dominates throughout, and because of what David says in Psalm 51, I think it's David who's doing the instructing, doing what he longed to do whenever he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. That's what David's wanting to do here, I believe. What's it specifically David is wanting to lead us in? Don't be like me. Don't be a stubborn horse that has to be led to confession when God's hand is heavy upon him. The idea is, may your conscience... Be tender and have the most sensitive hair trigger. Don't 
quench the Spirit. May your heart be attentive and soft to the Spirit's lightest touch. Before coming to the concluding command we have in verse 11, you have a statement of the principle that underlies it in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Our psalm opens by speaking of the blessed man. And now at the end, we're, we're speaking of the sorrows of the wicked. And David is presenting a contrast, but rather than the sorrow of the wicked and the joy of the righteous, he frames it this way. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Now you see that faith coincides with confession. And the word that you have is steadfast love is a rich word. It's a singular word. Steadfast love, one word in the Hebrew, and it's a rich word. It's a short word that has huge meaning. It's one of the most significant that we see. It occurs throughout the Scriptures again and again. And I I want you to learn to read whenever you hear steadfast love for you to think unfailing covenant love. That's what it conveys. The covenant love of God that He has for His people that doesn't fail but delivers on what it's promised. The unfailing covenant love of Yahweh surrounds the one who trusts in Him. Blessedness means being enveloped in the unfailing covenant love of Yahweh. This is what it means. The priests were instructed to bless the people. Numbers chapter 6 saying, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessedness is God. It's being enveloped, swimming in, surrounded by, immersed in His love. And the only place you know that unfailing covenant love is in Christ. And the only way that you are in Christ is you come confessing your sins and believing in Him as your righteousness. So that your sins are put away and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. And if you do that, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed are you because you trust in Him. Here, in Psalm 32, God gives His people a king to lead them into repentance as He Himself has walked that path. And that's a blessed gift. But it's a meaningless gift. If it was not a shadow of the promise to give them a king to lead them to repentance. 
A king who had never trod this path that we must. And it's precisely because he never trod the path of repentance. That we have any hope of him through this king leading us along in repentance. Because he had no sins of his own, he can put away ours. Because he was perfectly righteous, instead of our iniquities being counted against us, his righteousness can be counted to us. And in him, we come before God as a bride clothed in his sinlessness, enveloped in the steadfast, unfailing covenant love of God. So for those who have heeded the counsel and instruction that David gives here, what should be the response? Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Gladness, joy, shouting. Be glad, saints, that the covenant God of Israel has redeemed you by the blood of His Lamb and reconciled you to Himself. Why? Why? Are we blessed so? Because God is our Father. Christ, our elder brother. The Spirit, our comforter. Because we are baptized in the name of the triune God. The idea is His name is put up on us. It's bridal, covenant language. We Bear His name. We have communion and fellowship with the triune God of all beauty and glory, truth and goodness. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Holy Father, for those of you, your people, I pray there's conviction and contrition and confession and that with the joy of our salvation being restored to us by your goodness and grace in Christ, that we would now extol you, not only edifying and building up one another as we worship and glorify you, that we would go out and testify there is mercy and grace in God for sinners if they would confess their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.